What a blessing. Revelation chapter 2, Revelation chapter 2. We're going to be looking at Revelation chapter 2, the church at Smyrna, the church at Smyrna. Let's, let's do this. Let's stand together for the reading of God's Word. You know, we get that tradition of doing that. We go all the way back in the Old Testament, the book of Ezra, and we find as Ezra is reading the Scripture and giving the sense the people stood out of respect for the Word of God. And so we do that today for the same reason. Revelation chapter 2, beginning in verse 7, it says this, He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. To him that overcometh will I give to eat of the tree of life which is in the midst of the paradise of God. Unto the angel of the church at Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, which was dead and is alive. I know thy works and tribulation and poverty, but thou art rich. And I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Behold, the devil shall cast some of you into prison, that you may be tried, and you shall have tribulation ten days. Be thou faithful unto death, and I will give thee a crown of life. He that hath an ear, let him hear what the Spirit saith unto the churches. He that overcometh shall not be hurt of the second death. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, bless your word now. Lord, I pray that you challenge my heart as you challenge the hearts of these young people, of these, uh, the faculty, all the people that are gathered here. Lord, I pray as we gather around your word and we hear this message to this sweet church, Lord, I pray that we be challenged by what they say and what, what you have said to them and what they did. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. It's a blessing to be at Maranatha. Baptist University. I've had great contacts with folks. Some of my great friends over the years have been graduates of Maranatha Baptist University or Maranatha Baptist Bible College back in the days. One of the churches that we planted was Flagstaff, Arizona. It was a church plant directly out of our church. We were the, the, the primary financial support for that. And Randy Miller is a graduate of Maranatha Baptist Bible College and doing a fantastic job there in Flagstaff. Um, when I was in high school, I remember there was a young man who used to hang around. I, was, I went to a Christian school uh, through high school, Tri-City Christian Academy, which was in Tempe, Arizona at the time. And uh, I, used to, I was on the basketball team, and there was a young man that, he was graduated from high school already, never went to the Christian school, but he was graduated from high school. He used to love to play basketball, and he would hang around uh, the basketball team, sometimes sort of assist the coach, but was uh, sort of not really an official assistant, just hang, hung around, hang around with the teenagers. He wasn't dating anybody. He wasn't married. He really wasn't doing anything in life. He just sort of had a job, and he was just kind of, you know, just not getting an education, just hanging around. And I remember our youth pastor, that was Dave Bunt, who was also a Maranatha graduate, we're standing in the parking lot after a practice one day, and Dave looked at Mike, and he said to Mike, he said, if you were as interested in doing something for God as putting a ball through a hoop, you might actually accomplish something for God in your life. Now, he said that to him with all these friends standing around. Now, I don't know if you have been ever reprimanded like that in front of other people. I was at one point in my life. I remember, uh, well, I'm not going to go into that story. I don't want to tell a story inside a story. But Mike took that to heart. 
I remember thinking, how is he going to respond to that? I mean, he was a good guy. We really loved him. But, you know, how is he going to respond to that? Mike took that to heart, went away to Maranatha Baptist Bible College, got a degree in elementary education, went back to Tri-City and has taught fourth grade there for, I don't know, the, almost the last 40 years. And last, what, this last year, last fall, he's the alumnus of the year at Maranatha Baptist University. By the way, he has one countless number of kids in his class to the Lord over the years. Because when you're teaching fourth grade, that's the prime age for kids coming to know Jesus Christ as Savior. But God used a Maranatha grad to influence another guy to come to Maranatha to make a huge difference. And by the way, his son-in-law is now teaching history in our school, uh, who is also a graduate of Maranatha Baptist University. And so um, Justin Howe, by the way, is doing an excellent job. Some of you folks know Justin. And so there's a lot of influence in our ministry and through friendship through the years. But this is, this is really important because there's Justin and there's Mike and there's Randy. and These are graduates of this school that are doing something for God. Now, at some point, it's been somewhere in the not-too-distant past. Maranatha Baptist Bible College became Maranatha Baptist University. Now, there was a deliberate choice in doing that, and I understand that. You know, you have your majors expanding, you're uh, reaching out, but there's a danger in that thinking. And the thinking is you're going from preparing people to a li- for a lifetime of serving God and full-time Christian ministry to preparing for careers. And there is a magnitude of difference in the mentality. Now, I have no doubt that the intentionality in going from Maranatha Baptist Bible College to Maranatha Baptist University had nothing to do with preparing people with, for careers. Just understanding the, It was just understanding the fact that God calls people to serve in lots of different ways throughout life. But I have to ask you this question. Why are you here? I mean, what is, what is your purpose in being here? I remember being a freshman in college. Coming in, brand new freshman in college, I'd had two senior roommates. One was a biology major, and the other one was a Bible major. And so the, the biology major was interested in serving the Lord and doing some things. That, but here is this guy. This guy is a Bible major, a ministerial student. And his attitude as a senior was... I just want to get out of here. I just want to get that piece of paper and get out of here. And as far as I know, never did anything with his life for the Lord. But the guy who's a biology major is still serving God. So my question to you is, why are you here? If you're here to get a career, just to, just to go out and get a career, I'm not going to tell you in the wrong, you're in the wrong place because that's not the problem. The problem is you have the wrong heart. Because God calls everyone to serve him. Every believer is called to serve him with their life. It isn't like God just calls, he calls like pastors or missionaries or these these high-level Christian servants to serve in their life. And everybody else is just sort of laity. They're second-class citizens, and they sort of serve in their local church. No, God is calling you to serve him, and you might be amazed about the way God will call you to serve him with, how, with the training, the education, 
he has given you yet in the future. We're going to talk here about the church at Smyrna. And I want you to understand something about the church of Smyrna. The church at Smyrna suffered great persecution. And it wasn't just the preacher at the church at Smyrna that suffered that. It is possible that we'll go into days of persecution here in the United States of America. If we do go into days of persecution, it won't just be the preachers and the evangelists and the spiritual leaders that suffer that way. It'll be everybody. By the way, this is, we're facing, Christians are facing persecution around the world, even to this day. We have one of, one of the men that was one of the deacons in our church, God called to the mission field, finished his Master of Divinity International Baptist College, and he, he had taken, he and his family, to Nigeria. Some of you folks might know Shay and Abigail Babalola. But Nigeria might be the hottest spot in the world for Christian persecution right now. Over the, Christ, Christ, uh, over the Christmas holiday, nearly 200 Christians were murdered in Nigeria for the sake of being Christians, and they weren't just pastors. We're all called. Will we all serve? So we come to Revelation, and this revelation, of course, was given to John. John is, at, John is exiled on the island of Patmos. We're not sure about everything that happened in John's life up to this point. We do know that John suffered. Um, some Roman Catholic tradition says that he was boiled in oil and miraculously survived the experience, emerging from the cauldron unscathed. Of course, that's not recorded in Scripture, and we don't know anything about that, but we do know that he was exiled. He was exiled to the island of Patmos. We do know that John, uh, the Apostle John was spent the bulk of his later ministry in the church at Ephesus, so when he's writing to the church at Ephesus, like we see here last, uh, when we were taking a look at this this morning, when we, he's writing to the church at Ephesus, he's writing to his home church. The Apostle John was the youngest of all the apostles. Some, probably somewhere around 95, 96, probably died around 96 AD, which, which puts him significantly removed time-wise, you know, 66 years removed from the time that Jesus Christ was crucified. And so by the time we come to John on this day in the Isle, on the Isle of Patmos when he says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day and he received this revelation from the Lord, I wonder what his thoughts were as he was in the Spirit on the Lord's day. I imagine, you know, he had plenty of time to think while he's on Patmos. And maybe he's thinking back to all of those men who he, who he walked the, the streets of Palestine with, the, the dusty trails of Palestine. And he remembered people like Peter and like Thomas. John understood intimately, for instance, the life of Peter. It's, the, it's John's apostle that records so distinctly Peter's betrayal. And then it is John exclusively that covers the conversation that, John, that Jesus Christ has beside the Sea of Galilee with John where he says, Simon, son of Jonas, do you love me? There's this intimate knowledge that, that John has as P, of Peter. And Peter probably martyred, maybe martyred in Rome. It's, it might well be that within just a few weeks of one another, both Peter and Paul faced martyrdom in Rome in the, in the persecutions under Nero. And he's probably thinking back to all of these people that he'd known that were gone. 
But he's also thinking forward to people also that he had met. One of the, what church historians tell us and the early church fathers tell us, one of the men that John mentored and discipled into a ministry was a young man who he participated in his ordination. His name was Polycarp. Polycarp was one of the early church, what we consider one of the early church fathers and became, and, and there are some that even say that, that it was John who ordained him into ministry. And so Polycarp, of course, lived almost to, to 90 and he was one of those last people who knew one of the people who knew Jesus. But Polycarp became the bishop or the pastor at the church at Smyrna. And it might well be that Polycarp was a young man pastoring at the church at Smyrna when John received this letter for the church at Smyrna. In other words, one of the seven stars... that the Lord is holding in his hand is a man named Polycarp, who's the pastor of this church. And so, this message is given to the church. And I want you to notice, every time one of these churches gets a message from the Lord, he's described differently to that church. For instance, unto the angel of the church at Ephesus write these things, um, the one who holds the seven stars in his hand, verse 1, I know your works, this is the one who knows the works, this is the one who knows the, has the stars in his hand. When we come to verse, um, chapter, verse 8, we see him described as the one who was the first and the last, the one who's dead and is alive. When we come to the next church and we find this church, the church of Pergamos, he's the one that's holding the sword in his hand. Um, you, you understand this, to every you are a certain person, but you're a different kind of person to everyone you know. For some people, I'm Pastor Shaw. For some people, I'm the, ta I'm the teacher that's in the class. To my kids, I'm dad. To my grandkids, I'm granddad. I'm, and I'm different in every one of those circumstances. And it's different, not based upon the fact that I'm a different person, but each of these people, each of these people in my life have a different relationship to me. And so the Lord, the Lord Jesus Christ, seems different even to various ones of you depending upon your relationship to him. And so who is this Lord to the church at Smyrna? Well, he's the, he's the first and the last. He's the one who is the creation and the creator. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with him. All things were made by him. Without him there was not anything made that was made. Those are the words of John... These are the words of Jesus Christ through John to the church. He's the first. He was there in creation. And certainly Jesus Christ is the first. He's the beginning. He's the preeminent one over all things, the book of Colossians chapter 1 tells us. But he's also the firstborn of a new type of creation. He was the firstborn, the first resurrected. So when it says that he was the one who was dead and is alive again, he's also the firstborn of a new kind of resurrection. That is a matter of emphasis in this passage of Scripture. Because he's also the, the last. He will be the one that we worship for all of eternity. He's the eternal king. I know we talk about the millennium. We talk about the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ that will come. And there will be a literal thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. And it will happen someday. 
But let me tell you something. The millennium isn't really the millennium. It's just a thousand years until there's a final judgment. But the kingdom of Jesus Christ is an eternal kingdom. It will continue on beyond that. And so we will reign with him forever. You know, when we start thinking about suffering and persecution and dying for your faith and those kinds of things, it is really easy to get morbid. It is really easy to get dark, and it's really easy to start thinking about defeat and finality, but it was not defeat for this church, and it is not defeat for Christians, because like the Apostle Paul told us in Colossians chapter 1, we're supposed to set our affection on things above, not on things on the earth. And if that is the way that we're thinking in our lives, if that is the way our mentality is, then we, we look completely differently at the dangers we face and all the things that we go through. He is the first and the last. He is the, he is the coming. He is the ruler, Lord. He's also the one who died, was buried, and rose again. Notice what it says in verse 8. He's the one which was dead and is alive. Why is it that the first century church had such power? Why is it that the first century church was able to turn the world upside down for Jesus Christ? We have recorded in Scripture the works of the Apostle Paul. And the Apostle Paul was the apostle to the Gentiles, but he wasn't the only apostle that went to the Gentiles. William Carey wrote a treatise on the importance of using what he called means for the, world, for the work of worldwide evangelism. If you've not read his treatise, that really was something that spawned the modern missionary movement. You ought to do it because he goes into the history of the apostles and talks about how the apostles went to the entire world of their day and turned the world upside down for Jesus Christ. The apostle Thomas going as far as India, others going up into, the, uh, into Russia, all of, all of northern Africa, potentially even into Great Britain in the first century with the first generation. They were on fire for Jesus Christ. Now, why were they on fire for Jesus Christ? Because they were witnesses of the resurrection from the dead. Because their Lord that they listened to and they heard his teaching and transformed their lives and they watched him do miracles. They watched all of these things, but on the day that he was crucified, they all fled. But after that, they saw him rise from the dead and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and and the world was transformed even today. He's the one who rose from the dead. Now, I want you to notice what it says here. Unto the angel of the church of Smyrna write, These things saith the first and the last, who was dead and is alive. I know your works. Just like the church at Ephesus, he knows. He knows what we do. You know those things that you do that you know are right? and you're convicted or right, but you wonder when everybody else around you is doing the wrong things, whether it's going to make any difference at all. He knows. He knows what goes on in the depths of your heart. He knows your burdens. He knows the pain that you go through. He knows the things that you care about. He knows your sinful thoughts. He knows 
He says, I know your works. And he knows the works of the entire church. You know, I, it is interesting to watch to be the pastor of a church because there are things that go on in a church in which somebody, every, you know, some things everybody knows about, but there are things that go on in a church that, where there are dearly beloved servants of God who are faithfully serving and nobody ever notices what they do. I got a, I got a chance when I was semina- in seminary to be a church janitor. Um, they had, when we were at Calvary, Calvary Baptist Church had the glorious title of Sexton. I didn't really know what that meant. It sounded like it was really important, but really a sexton is a janitor. And I wasn't even the sexton. I was the assistant sexton. And so uh, what, did I, what did that mean I got to do? I got to clean up the bathrooms. Uh, after the kids every day, and I had to clean up the seminary area, and I got to clean under the bleachers because they, you know, they had their high school, junior high kids all eat on the bleachers for lunch every day, and they weren't very clean. But I didn't care. It was a, it was a great honor to me. After all, I could, I could work in the church, and I had keys to the library. And of course, having keys to the library meant the world to a seminary student. You know, there are things that people do that are just unsung. And I learned, uh, as, as I was doing that jo- job, all the things that people too do behind the scenes. He says, I know your works. I know the things that you do. I know your tribulation. Uh, they were facing tribulation. This church was facing trouble, persecutions. They had pay, faced persecutions. There were persecutions that were already happening. There were persecutions in Rome, specifically under Nero. And Paul and Peter most likely fell in those persecutions. But they continued under Domitian, Hadrian, Pius. But probably the persecution under Antoninus Pius is what's going on here. And that's probably what put John on the Isle of Patmos. And that's probably what's going on now. But then you have persecutions that follow on even later. But they were in a city that was a, was a hotbed for paganism. I mean, it wasn't just a Judaizing city. It was an intense pagan city. It's a, let's take a look and we'll notice. He says, I know... He says, and your poverty, we'll come back to that. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but are the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things. They were in this city that was an intensely wicked place. They were also facing the persecution of the Jews. I want you to understand something because we, we tend to look at history through a very isolated lens. People get, become very critical of what was the Catholic Church, the Roman Catholic Church, for a spirit of anti-Semitism. You understand, though, this, that spirit goes all the way back to the times of the Church Fathers, when many of the people that were assisting the Romans in killing the Christians were the Jews. Now, I'm not spouting any sort of anti-Semitism at this point, because nobody should be punished now for things that their ancestors did. But understand that one of the great enemies of the early church and those that participated in seeing them come to, to martyrdom were the Jews who eagerly helped the pagans in persecuting the Christians for reasons all of their own. We'll discuss that a little bit later. 
And he says, notice, he says, I know what's going on. Uh, you have the people there who are part of the this, this synagogue, and he calls it the synagogue of Satan, being used of Satan to persecute the church who are followers of the true Messiah that they should be following. But it was, it was Jews that crucified Jesus Christ. You say, well, the, you know, well, the Gentiles are better. Well, it was Romans that were also persecuting the Christians. R really what it is, is unbelief. It's satanic attack upon the people of God. And Satan hates it when the people of God are being effective in ministry. We ought not to be worried when we're facing persecution or when persecution comes. What ought to concern us is when there is none. When, when it seems like the devil doesn't care because we seem like we're no threat. He says that he knows your great poverty. This was a church probably with a very young pastor at the time. If Polycarp was the pastor of this church at this time, he would have been in his 20s. It's a not an unknown thing for a pastor to be in their 20s. I know that. I was that age when I went into ministry. I planted a church at 24 years old. I mentioned that Sunday night. I think I'm losing track. I mentioned that Sunday night when I was at Calvary. And so um, he would have been in his 20s at that time, but, they, but the Christians also would have been persecuted. In one of those forms of persecution that is sometimes even a little bit more difficult to, for us to face, because one of the ways in which Satan persecutes the church is sort of a cultural isolationism. Okay, you can worship like you want, and you can pray like you want, you can all do all those things, but you can't have the jobs. Unless you buckle down and you admit this or you do that or you uh, acknowledge this thing which is not true, you can't work here. That was true in the first century. What was happening in the Roman Empire was the idea of Caesar worship, the worship of the prime ruler of the Roman Empire. And if a person refused to participate in worshiping Caesar and acknowledge him as deity, he was called by the Romans an atheist regardless of whatever God he served. And of course, the Christians would not, could not acknowledge in any way that Caesar was deity any more than the three Hebrew children of the Old Testament could bow down to Nebuchadnezzar's idol they would not acknowledge anybody but their Lord and Savior Jesus Christ and the Heavenly Father was in heaven as their deity. And because of that, they sometimes didn't get jobs and they sometimes were isolated in the culture and sometimes were set aside. And sometimes that went so far as to see persecution. In fact, the ways that the persecution often happened were that um, there would be some sort of calamity. that would come. There'd be... Uh, earthquakes or floods or storms, things that would happen that would be natural disasters, famine, and they would say, it's because of those Christians. And so they'd begin persecuting them. And the, the idea was, if we can get as many of them as possible to recant and deny their Savior and, and acknowledge that Caesar is Lord, then all of these problems will go away. Does this sound familiar? Kind of sounds like what Hitler and the Germans did with the Jews 
World War II? And you, if you think that, thing, that kind of thing cannot happen again in this world, you are sadly mistaken. So this was a poor church. It was a poor church in a wealthy city. It was a church that was being persecuted by the Romans. It was a church that was being persecuted by, uh, by the Jews. Notice the command. He says, I know thy works, the tribulation, the poverty, but thou art rich. I know the blasphemy of them which say they are Jews and are not, but of the synagogue of Satan. Fear none of those things which thou shalt suffer. Now, I want you to notice the command. The command here, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. He says, uh, fear none of those things. Which, and he'll, he'll continue on, be faithful unto death. Can I just tell you something? Every one of you are going to face trials and difficulties in your life. There are some older people in this room. They've been around a while. Maybe married 25, 30, 40, some 50, maybe more. My mother and father-in-law just celebrated their 65th wedding anniversary. If God had told you when you first got married all the troubles and difficulties that you were going to have when you got married, it would have scared you to death. But guess what? Life brings trouble and difficulty to the just and to the unjust alike. And you know what he does? He gives us grace to handle the difficulties. Now, it doesn't mean that it isn't painful. And it doesn't mean that he, giving us grace doesn't mean he takes them all away before they happen. He allows cancer to come into life and he allows tragedy to come into people's life and he allows accidents and brain tumors and financial turnaround and betrayal by friends. He allows all of these types of things to come into life. Your choice is this. You can choose to go through all of those things with him or without him. That's your choice. He says, don't be afraid. Don't be afraid. You know, I, you, so you come to, I come to this passage of Scripture that deals with this, this suffering church, this persecuted church, and I don't want to emphasize the suffering so much that you leave this place tonight absolutely afraid of what God might have for you because that's not the way it's supposed to work. You're supposed to put your trust in me and let me take you forward. Now, in this case, not everybody suffers persecution like the church at Smyrna would. But, but in this case, one of the things that gives them encouragement is, should be this. Even though more trouble is coming, he knows all about it. He knows the trouble that's coming tomorrow. He knows the trouble that's coming the next day. Peter understood this when he was writing his book, 1 Peter chapter 4, verse 12. He said, Think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is about to try you. 
Peter is writing these words probably in direct anticipation, maybe not knowing all the ramifications of it himself, concerning the fiery trial that would come to the Christians in Rome that would suffer under the persecution of Rome. Many of them lit up as human torches to line the garden parties for Nero. The fiery trial which is about to try them. He says here, some of you are going to be thrown into prison. Prison wasn't something that was unusual. The Apostle Paul had some of his most effective ministry when he was in prison. And that's been the case of, of Christians throughout all of the centuries. John Bunyan wrote Pilgrim's Progress when he was in prison. God can use you in amazing ways wherever you find yourself. Just think about prison. You have a place to stay. You have a bed to sleep on. Somebody's providing food for you. And you can spend all of that time praying and thinking about the Lord. Here's what he says also, that you may be tried and that you shall have tribulation ten days. Now, there has been a lot of speculation about what the ten days here is. Some believe it was the ten ten types of persecution or ten waves of persecution that came under uh, the various uh, Roman leaders. I don't really know. I can't give you the answer. Here's what I tell you. Ten days is a limited period of time, and then it will be over. There's a limited period of time, and then it will be over. And here's what he says. Be faithful unto death. Don't deny your Lord, because because denying the Lord Jesus Christ was the crime that the Christians were being tempted to commit, to declare that they didn't know him, to declare that he was not God, to curse him and accept Caesar as God. In order to do that, they had to keep their focus on eternal things. He said, if you do that, you you set your affections on things above, not on things of the earth, then understand that I will give you a crown of righteousness one day. And every one of these Christians who suffered persecution in Smyrna received that crown of righteousness. So keep your focus on eternal things. He that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. He that overcomes shall not be hurt of the second death. It was many years later, and the church at Smyrna was suffering great persecution. What had happened was there were natural calamities that came. And of course, you had the rise and, well, it's all the Christians' fault. And so they began persecuting Christians in Smyrna. Polycarp was the pastor and had been the pastor at Smyrna for, for many years. In fact, Polycarp was one of the great leaders among the early church. He was one of the great defenders of the orthodoxy of Christianity. He was the one that went to Rome to combat the Martianists. And that's, I mean, he, I mean, he accomplished some, some great things. He's 86 years old and was very much revered at the time. You go to the fact he's 86 years old and then he knew John when he was old. He knew someone who knew Jesus. He knew John. He knew the John who wrote 
Our eyes have seen and our hands have handled the word of life. He knew someone who touched Jesus. They say that when Polycarp was going to the stake to be burned, it was one of the first times he'd taken, in many years that he'd taken off his own shoes because when he would sit down to take off his shoes, Christians would rush to take off his shoes just because they wanted to touch the skin of somebody who had touched somebody who had touched Jesus. They decided, the leadership of the church, uh, leadership in the city of Smyrna, that they needed to catch Polycarp. And the policy of the Christians at the time was this. You don't reject persecution, but you don't seek it. I mean, if you can hide, you can get away, you can go someplace, go do that. But if you get caught, you don't deny the Lord. And so he had been moved to a house in the countryside, and the soldiers came to get him with great fanfare and torches like he was a great enemy of the state. When the soldiers who were sent to find Polycarp found him, he, um, they found this old man. They walked into the house, and there were those that in the house said, we can flee, you can go, and he finally said, no more running. So the soldiers come into the house, soldiers, police officers, whatever they were, and he asked the leaders, the people that were in the house to fix him a meal. And he sat down at a table with them and fed them a dinner before they arrested him. And then he asked if he could take an hour to pray. And they looked at this old man and realized, what in the world did we do in coming with all of these soldiers? He's just this old guy. And he's, and he's pretty much harmless. So they, so they allowed him an hour to pray. And he stood among them and prayed out loud for over two hours for their souls and for the church and for God's protection upon the church. And then they took Polycarp to the stadium. And the inquisitor at the stadium asked him to deny his Lord Jesus, to curse Christ and call Caesar God. And in one of the earliest church writings that we have extant, we have, it's, it's about the death of Polycarp. He's quoted as saying, 80 and six years have I served him. And he's done me no wrong. How can I blaspheme my king and savior? You threaten me with a fire that burns for a season and after a little while is quenched. But you are ignorant of the fire of everlasting punishment that is pre prepared for the wicked. So they took Polycarp. They were going to tie him to the stake. He said, you don't need to bind me. He said, the grace of the Lord will keep me in the fire. And they gathered and they lit the fire. And they said his, his last words were a prayer. He said, I bless you, Father, for judging me worthy of this hour so that in the company of the martyrs I may share in the cup of Christ. There's a sense in which John, by means of the Holy Spirit, was looking forward, maybe even to this moment in the persecution of Smyrna. I imagine going back to John, receiving this message prior to these events, and delivering this message 
to the church at Smyrna, to these people at Smyrna that he no doubt had a relationship with because Ephesus is not that far away. And he had ordained their pastor. And John wondering just how was all of this going to work out for these believers? Because if it was in my heart, if I was John, I would be thinking, is the persecution ever going to be over? And then John thinking back to Peter. Because you know something about Peter? You know the very crime for which believers were being executed, martyred, in the time of Polycarp, the very sin was the one that Peter sinned three times on the night of Jesus' crucifixion. He denied his Lord three times, and he ran away ashamed. And it's still, and I, I wonder at Peter's life, I wonder at, at, at Peter's life, I wonder at that point if he felt he was of no more use to his Lord. I would have felt like that, wouldn't you? I mean, at the moment that Jesus was crucified, you were denying that you even knew him. After you had said, I'll go with you to the death. Have you determined in, in all boldness, I'm willing to die for you, Lord. Then he denied him three times and fled. And then Jesus died, he was buried, and he rose again the third day, and, and Peter is a witness of his resurrection. And then, turn with me to John chapter 20. We're going to finish with this. Beside the Sea of Galilee, Jesus meets with Peter. Actually, John chapter 21, verse 15, it says, So when they've dined, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me? Agape, by the way. Do you have a self-sacrificing love for me? Can you, what do you think is going through Peter's mind at that moment? Do you, Peter, do you have a self-sacrificing love for me? I, I, I doubt that Peter could really ever look Jesus in the eye to this point. And how can he say that? I mean, there was a time when he said, I'm willing to die for you. But now, all of that arrogance and all of that bravado is gone. And there's absolutely no confidence in himself. He's failed miserably. He's failed utterly. And Peter says, Lord, you know, I'm phileo. I have deep affection for you. He says, you know that, how much I have this affection for you. But that idea of that self-sacrificing love, that deep God-type love, he couldn't bring himself to say it. And Jesus said, feed my lambs. That is significant because what Jesus is saying is, you have a job to do. You have ministry to do. I've not rejected you. I have a task for you ahead. Even though you failed, even though you denied me, I have a task for you ahead. And he said unto him the second time, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me agape? And he said unto him, Lord, you know that I phileo, I, I have deep affection for you. And Jesus says, feed my sheep. 
I have a job for you. Lead people to the Lord Jesus Christ. Disciple them. Feed the church. Participate in the work of ministry. Then Jesus says the third time, Simon, son of Jonas, phileo me? Do you really have deep affection for me? And Peter, it was that switch, I believe, that really made Peter discouraged. Do you, do you even have an affection for me? He, this, this has to be about the lowest moment for Peter. But then the Lord looks at him and he says, verse 18. And I want you to understand the verse, verse 18 in comparison and in the context of the church at Smyrna. Here's what he says. Verily, verily, truly, truly, I say unto you, when you were young, you girded thyself and walkest whither you would. But when thou shalt be old, remember John is writing this. And John might well be writing this after Peter was already martyred. So he's not writing this out of a prophecy, but he's writing this saying that Jesus was prophesying about something that has already been fulfilled. You'll stretch forth your hands, and another shall gird thee and carry thee whether you, wouldn't, you wouldest not. Carry thee where you don't want to go. Thus he spake, signifying what death he should glorify God. And when he had spoken this, he saith unto him, follow me. Now what do you think Peter's reaction to that would have been? Because Jesus just told Peter, you're going to be a martyr. It's not the reaction that first comes to mind. Because you know what just, Jesus just told Peter? The very thing that you failed to do, in the end, you will accomplish. You will be faithful to death. Why are you here? I hope you're here with this determination to give your life to Jesus Christ. Wherever that may take you, whatever he might call you to do, wherever he might send you, Whatever income that might bring. And be faithful to him till the moment you breathe your last breath and you enter the glories of heaven ready to receive a crown of life that is there for those who have given their lives fully to Jesus Christ. That's what matters. That is a life worth living. A life lived to get stuff and a bigger house and a nicer car and a better job and the acclaim of the wicked of this world. That's worth nothing. And you might get it, but it will sour in your mouth if you sacrifice the smile of your Lord for it. Be faithful. Don't fear. The reward is great. Let's stand together with heads bowed, eyes closed.
purpose of preaching is to bring you to a point of decision. There are decisions that we need to make every day in our lives. Faithfulness, choosing to obey rather than disobey. Choosing to spend time with the Lord and spend time in prayer. But there are also certain decisions that we make that are turning point decisions in our life. Like the one that Mike High made that I described at the beginning of this message. Those change of attitude, change of direction, I'm going to serve God with my life types of decisions. I have to believe, though this is Bible college, though this is a Christian college, that there, God might be calling some of you to make that kind of decision. You, you're here. It's Christian college. You've acknowledged Christ. You want to live a, a Christian life. But a life that is surrendered to him, for him to direct you wherever he wants you to go, you haven't got to that point yet. Persecution might be coming. Might not. We don't have a prophecy for you like there was a prophecy for the church at Smyrna. But one of the things I guarantee you is that trouble will come. Will you walk through that trouble of life in surrender and obedience to him or stubbornly going your own way? That's the type of decision you need to make tonight. Let's bow our heads, close our eyes, let the piano play, let's do business with God.